I'm reading from Psalm 84, and that's on page 420 of the Bibles that you were doing given. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Uh, okay, well, good morning. It is uh, lovely to be with you here again at Trinity Northeast. Uh, it's lovely to look out and see some dear friends uh, who uh, I don't see as regularly uh, since uh, you guys left Trinity City a number of years ago, but it's wonderful to see you still pushing on here. And uh, even more encouraging is to see there's lots of people who I don't know, and I look forward to meeting you over the uh, next few weeks. Uh, we're looking at these three Psalms, uh, 84, 85, and 86, over the next uh, few weeks, and I'll ask you to take out from the inside of your handout uh, this little insert, which has an outline of what I'm going to cover. There's um, some notes on the back that will help you make sense of what I'm talking about, uh, and uh, also a couple of other Bible readings that, if you have printed in front of you, will save you flipping them up later. Uh, great songs, great songs make you feel something special, uh, not just for how they sound, but also because of what they say. Uh, so what makes Psalm 84 a song of the sons of Korah? You'll see there at the top of the Bible passage, sons of Korah. What makes it so magnificent? Well, I think the answer to that question is because of how the sons of Korah describe our great, great God. Uh, and in many ways, to begin that way is a reminder of the key to reading the Psalms. Uh, I've been here over the last few years, and you'll know that I keep repeating this each time we come to the Psalms. Uh, the key to the Psalms is what they tell us about what God is like, and not so much what we should do. What they tell us what God is like, not so much what we should do. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, the first is so that we avoid making the mistake of thinking that our role today as Christians is just to repeat what the psalmist does. Uh, so, for example... This is a psalm that's all about getting to Jerusalem, to Zion. If you thought the psalms were just to be repeated today, then most of us would be booking airline tickets tomorrow to the Middle East. That's not the point of how we're meant to read the psalms. Uh, but the second reason why the key to the psalms is what God is like, not what we should do, is because ultimately that enables us to see how the Lord Jesus is the fullest and most complete revelation and description of what God is like in all of his glory and so each of these weeks, I've just called the Psalms, or the title of these talks, The God Who Something, The God Who Blesses This Week, Next Week, The God Who Answers, and Finally, The God Who Forgives. Look, if you look at your handout, you'll see what I want to cover today, what Psalm 84 says about God, what Psalm 84 says about Jesus, 
and what Psalm 84 says about us. So here we go. Firstly, what Psalm 84 says about God. Uh, It's a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music. Uh, It is set at some point in Old Testament Israel, uh, likely hundreds of years before Christ. I say that because it appears that the temple in Jerusalem is in operation at the time. And the way in which the psalm is set out is in three even verses or stanzas. Uh, If you actually turn over on your handout, you'll see on the front that I've divided uh, the three parts of the psalms. And you can see verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8, verses 9 through 12. um, Evenly set out. Uh, Each of the verses finishes, uh, uses the word blessed in it. Blessed. uh, To describe what being in relationship with God is like and therefore actually what God is like. And the three things I'd like to say about the psalm, you'll see printed there on your handout. Firstly, how good it would be to be with God. How good it would be to be with God. Let me read the first four verses again. How lovely is your dwelling place, place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Uh, The song opens in the first verse, uh, in the first stanza, by vividly describing uh, the songwriter's great desire. My soul yearns, it even faints with longing to be with God, to be in his courts, to be in his house. And most likely at this point, it's a description of Solomon's great temple that was built. Why does the songwriter want to be there? Well, not because the visit to the temple itself is significant, although the temple, as we know, is magnificent. It was glorious. It was one of the spectacles of the ancient world. But the reason the songwriter wants to be in the temple, in God's house, is that he might be as close as possible to God. In verse, verse 3, where it mentions the altar, uh, the altar is the ultimate sign of acceptance, of belonging, of intimacy. You cannot come any closer to God than to be at the altar where, as the Old Testament Israelites understood, God himself dwelt amongst his people. And so in verse 3, he says, even the sparrow and the swallow, the most insignificant of birds you could possibly imagine even more insignificant than a crow. Even it can come into God's presence. And if it can, so can we. No wonder the sons of Korah long to go there as well. And if they made it there, if they're allowed to stay there, if they're allowed to dwell there, how could you not call them anything but blessed? Why would they not do anything other than ever praise God? How good it would be to be with God. Secondly, the excitement and anticipation of being with God is infectious and contagious. Look at the second stanza, verses 5 through 8. Let me read it again. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. 
Uh, if this is the songwriter's great desire, to be with God, to get to the temple in Jerusalem, to be near the altar where God himself is, uh, no surprise then that the picture which stands, which stands with two paints is of those who are making their way to God's house. And in fact, the word that's used there to describe them uh, in verse 5 is that they are like pilgrims. Pilgrims who are on a journey, sometimes at great cost, through peril and danger, to get to the place where they want to go. I haven't been here for nearly a year, uh, but I parked in the usual car park, and uh, yeah, there's a few obstacles between there and here now. I found myself being diverted out the back. Uh, clearly, you've cornered the market on A-frame boards now so that people find their way here. A pilgrim, a pilgrim on their way to the house of the Lord, a pilgrim who is, with the end goal in mind, giddy and breathless with excitement and anticipation. As they, get, as they draw near, verse 7, they go from strength to strength and their excitement is infectious and contagious. Do you notice the image there in verse 6? Uh, verse 6, uh, it's the image of a dry and barren place, uh, the Valley of Baca, it's called. We don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound particularly hospitable. <laughs> Baca, the Valley of Baca. But a dry and barren place that is suddenly overflowing, drenched with cool, torrential rain. I think of um, Lake Eyre in the middle of our country that every now and then just overflows after a downpour and it's transformed. And the picture that's being used here in the second stanza is that as the pilgrims draw nearer, everyone hears what's going on and they too start to get excited. It's as if God's blessing spills over to others so that as those who are seeking God's house draw even closer, everything seems better. Everyone feels better. Sounds to me like saying to a visitor who's come from interstate at the end of an Adelaide winter, you've brought the sunshine with you. How good it would be to be with God. The excitement and anticipation of being with him is infectious and contagious. Thirdly, nothing matters more than being with our God. Nothing matters more than being with our God. Verses 9 through 12. Let me read the last few verses. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. The first stanza was the songwriter's desire to be with God. The second stanza, the picture as they make their way there. Thirdly, finally, they've arrived. They've arrived. The pilgrims stand outside the entrance to God's house, waiting to be admitted. The sense is knocking on the door. God, we're here. Will you let us in? Out front, verse 9, is their shield and their anointed one. This is a reference to the king. The king who has led them on their pilgrimage. The sense is that, well, if God welcomes the king in, he welcomes all of us as well. 
Who is that king? We'll see in a moment. But first, the justifiably famous verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. These are two powerful images. Two powerful images to describe how nothing matters more than being with our God. One day is an image in terms of time. A doorkeeper is an image in terms of nearness or proximity, right on the cusp of entry into God's presence. Which of those two captures your imagination? Better one day in God's house than a thousand elsewhere? Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to have a mansion amongst the wicked? Which is the one that does it for you? For me, I think it's the time one. The better one day in God's courts than a thousand days elsewhere. What's the best day that you've ever had? Maybe it was your wedding day. Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was a reunion with a long-lost relative. Maybe your best day was at last winning that competition you had strived for. Maybe it was the day you got a job. Maybe it was the day you left your job. What's your best day? Maybe it was the day when you finally, but for the first time, grasped the extent and horror and depth of your sin. And in the same instant, grasped the height and width and breadth of Christ's love for you nevertheless. What was your best day? A single day to be with God. To talk with him, to listen to him, just to hang out with him. It is better than a thousand of any other days, good though they might be. No wonder the sons of Korah therefore finished their song with three extravagant descriptions of God's goodness. In verse 11, in verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk is blameless. Three extravagant descriptions of God's goodness. Firstly, a sun and a shield. A shield conveys the sense of a protector or a defender, which of course is what the king ought to be, but... Here, God is our king. Whereas son, or son suggests not just protector, not just the one who maintains and defends life. Son, it's an image of the giver of life because the son is the source of life. Secondly, he bestows favour and honour. He bestows favour and honour. 
It is true, our God is just and he is right. And we want justice to be done, especially if we're the victims. But more than the righting of wrongs, what we long for, I think, is to be honoured and commended and praised and acclaimed and esteemed and by God, no less, the one who bestows honour and favour. And thirdly, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now, to be clear, the sense of blameless he is not sinless, but rather, no good thing does he withhold from those who are full of integrity, who are beyond reproach. Because in the end, we can come into God's presence not because we have any right to demand it. Even the anointed king needs God to look with favour on him. We come into God's presence simply because our God chooses to bestow favour and honour. For his goodness is abundant and overflowing. Verse 11, no good thing does he withhold. So there's Psalm 84. In summary, what does it say about God? It says that he is wonderful and that being with him is glorious and magnificent and delightful. And it says that he welcomes us in when we come asking, trusting in his benevolence and in his mercy. Okay, that's the psalm. That's what it says about God. Secondly then, what does the psalm say about Jesus? Uh, Remember that problem with which I started? How is it that we're meant to read the Old Testament? Are we to sing this song again today? Should we be Zionists committed to the restoration of Jerusalem with her magnificent temple? Well, no for two reasons. Firstly, because we know from Ezekiel that God's glory has departed and that no longer is the temple in Jerusalem the place where God dwells amongst his people. But secondly, no, we're not to be Zionists committed to the restoration of Jerusalem because of the key to the Psalms. They describe what God is like, not first and foremost what we should do. And therefore, the way to understand the Psalm as Christians is to see how it points us to Jesus. There are many ways, many themes that you could have detected as we read through Psalm 84 that point us to and remind us of what Jesus of Nazareth did and stood for and was. But here are just two. Firstly, Jesus is God in the flesh who lived amongst us. So John 1.14, which I put it there on your handout, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Uh, It's a reminder that in Jesus, God takes up residence in our world, not confined to the altar in the temple, but as a man whom all could meet. The second way in which Psalm 84 points us towards Jesus is that it reminds us of our problem, our problem of blamelessness. Remember how I said earlier that when the the songwriter uses the word blameless, it doesn't mean sinless or perfect in that way, because clearly none of us can be. Rather, it meant 
beyond reproach or full of integrity. Those are the ones whom God welcomes in. But the problem is still there. Because even if God knows we can't be sinless, still something must be done about our sin. The very fact that in the psalm they were to meet God at the altar where sacrifice for sin was made is very proof. And so here's how Psalm 84 points us towards Jesus. Jesus is the one who opens a new and living way to God by his blood shed as that sacrifice. And you see that perhaps most clearly in Hebrews 10, uh, which I printed there for you on your handout. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere, with a sincere heart. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10 is saying that Jesus is the one who has gone before us and by his own sacrifice, by the spilling of his own blood, that the altar reminded us is demanded Because of his sacrifice, we are welcomed in. And what I particularly love about Hebrews 10 is that image of Jesus going ahead of us as if to open the way, just like the king who stood at the front door in advance of his people. That's the reason why you might have noticed on the front of your handout, there's a little picture there. In recent times while preaching, I've taken to trying to think about how to leave an image in your head Uh, that might remind you of what it is that a passage of Scripture is about. You can see what the image there that I've left for you today. It's the image of a ticket whereby you don't just gain admittance for yourself, but you bring another with you. I think that's one of the ways in which we understand what Jesus does for us. He goes ahead of us. And when he gets to the front of the line where the security personnel are standing, the bouncer, he says, so-and-so is with me. They're coming in too. What Psalm 84 says about God, what Psalm 84 says about Jesus, finally then, let me finish, what Psalm 84 says about us today. Because as Christians, we understand that Jesus is not still here. He is not amongst us in the way in which he was 2,000 years ago in Israel. Now he sits with God in heaven, though he promises he might still be with us. How? Well, of again many passages, I've printed just one, Matthew 28. This is the conclusion to Matthew's account of Jesus' life. It explains where Jesus is now and explains how Jesus is with us, even though he is at the right hand of the Father. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And 
Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, Most Christians gloss over Jesus' promise in verse 20. The surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Um, It's the parallel to verse 18 where Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why in verse 17 they worship him. He's entitled to their praise. The reason most Christians gloss over verse 20 is because we're so quick to get to the what do I do part of disciple making, you know, the go baptize and teach, that we tend to forget the Bible, as I've said, is first and foremost about God, what he is like, what he has done, and what he says he will do for us. First and foremost, that's what it's about, and only secondarily about how we are to respond. But verse 20 is critical. It's Jesus' promise that he will be with us always. Always. Not just when we gather together as God's people, two or three in his name, though he is in a special kind of way. But can you see how inadequate that is? Can you understand that we are so much better off than the sons of Korah? Because by his spirit, Jesus is with all of us wherever we go. Not just with a handful of Palestinian Jews some 2,000 years ago. Jesus is with all of us wherever we go. Which, of course, is why he is known as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, But you noticed why Emmanuel is with us? It's to encourage us as we make disciples in his name. You see, the sense of Matthew 28 is that though Jesus has been recalled to heaven, he's not left us alone to make disciples of all nations. He is with us as we pass on the good news to others, just as it was first given to us. And so let me finish by simply asking you, in this week ahead, whomever you shall meet, how might you speak with the giddy, breathless, childlike excitement of being a pilgrim on the way to being with God? How might you speak with the anticipation and the delight of what it means to know that Jesus is already with us, now in part, one day soon in full? Which means that you don't have to go looking for him anymore. You don't have to try and find him or search him out. He is already here, right by our side. How might you speak of that excitement with whomever you meet, whoever the Lord Jesus brings into your path? Because I wonder, would not that kind of enthusiasm and excitement and conviction be infectious and contagious in our bewildering, frightening, an often desperately uncertain world.
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word has been written for us and for our salvation and for our encouragement. We thank you for the reminder of the hope that we have, above all in the Lord Jesus, of being with you and seeing you face to face. Though we're still on the way and sometimes it's hard to see, nevertheless, give us strength, we pray, and give us opportunity and courage with those around us that we meet to share with them this hope that we have. Amen.